The gun lobby exploits tragedy in this country to sell guns. You have to remember that they spent $30 million to help elect Donald Trump. And even though they had a Republican president and a Republican Congress for two years, they still could not pass their priority legislation. And that's because our organization has gotten so good at playing defense. I am so excited about my guest today. The purpose of being at the table has always been to introduce this community to people who are leading by example and whose work is just incredible because it is so necessary, especially in this moment. I think we can all agree that gun safety and gun sense is one of the most necessary issues, especially in the United States, but around the world. Shannon Watts was a stay-at-home mom of five. She was folding laundry in Zionsville, Indiana in December 2012 when she turned on the television and watched the horrific Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Newton, Connecticut. Saddened, angered, and fed up with her own and others' complacency in the face of seemingly endless mass shootings, she decided it was time to do something. The next day, she created a Facebook page and urged women to join her in organizing a Million Mom March. That Facebook page evolved into Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, the nation's largest grassroots gun violence prevention group with chapters in all 50 states and a powerful network of volunteers and survivors that has successfully affected change at the local, state, and national level. There are even some members sitting in Congress as we speak. Today, Shannon and I talk about the importance of inclusive community movement building, working with people who are most affected and most impacted and centering them in the work. We talk about recognizing that there's an agent of change and an activist in each and every single one of us. And of course, Shannon discusses, and I wholeheartedly agree, that there's a moral imperative to run for office, especially when we see something that we believe needs to change. I am so excited to have Shannon Watts here today, and I hope you love this conversation as much as I loved having it. This is At the Table with Dr. Elam Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth one of 17 global UN Sustainable Development Goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries. And I've met people who have completely changed the game from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called at the table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine, where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Hi, Shannon. I am so excited to have you on today. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. It's truly an honor. So I have been following your work for months, if not years, I believe. And I often kind of will find myself at 2 a.m. reading through Twitter and retweet, retweeting so much of what you're saying 
about community safety and about, um, you know, the, the rights that every person should have to live a safe life with dignity, to know their kids are going to school and they will be safe. And, and I've, I've so long admired your work. So I wonder, my first question for you today is as somebody who has really become a, a leader in the movement for gun safety um, and, and somebody who has, has really kind of created and cultivated this movement, how do you feel? <sighs> I, I feel tired, but I also feel motivated. Tired because it isn't just the election work. As you mentioned, it's been eight years of doing this. And um, in a democracy, it does take time to create change. As frustrating as that may be to someone uh, who doesn't appreciate the, the incrementalism our system is set up for. And I understand that. But I also think it's what leads to revolution. So tired, but, but motivated too. Um, because we are winning, because I've seen the change that we've been able to affect in just eight years. Um, what we've accomplished in, in boardrooms and in state houses, and, and hopefully by the time this airs uh, at a federal level. Um, so I think it's, it's human to be tired. And if I weren't tired, maybe I wouldn't have been working as hard as I should be. But I also think it's really important that, that we feel motivated because this work can take time. And if you look at other social movements in this country, they take sometimes a decade, sometimes decades. And when you're up against one of the most powerful and wealthy special interests that ever has existed, um, you have to know that you're, it's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. So you, I love that you say tired, but motivated, because I think that um, resonates with so many people, particularly <laughs> in this moment. I, I have to ask, Shannon, what initially motivated you? Because it is such a large issue. It is, you know, the largest public interest, uh, sorry, the largest organization um, that really does funnel money very aggressively into opposing a lot of the work you do. And you take this on mm -hmm. every day. So what, what was your motivation? When I started Moms Demand Action, um, I was living in the suburbs of Indianapolis. I'm a, a white mom of five kids. And they were ranging in age at that point from elementary, middle, high school, and college. And I was worried, frankly, after the Sandy Hook tragedy that my kids weren't safe in their schools. That's what got me off the sidelines. Shame on me that it took so long because over 100 Americans are shot and killed in this country every single day. And, and honestly, mass shootings and, and school shootings are about 1% of that violence. While tragic and horrible, it's also homicides and suicides and unintentional shootings and domestic gun violence, right? It's all of it. And so we quickly realized as an organization that we would need to address all of it. It's, it's senseless, it's preventable, and there are different but also similar ways to, to make it stop. Um, so, you know, back to that day of, of December 14th, 2012, I had been home from the corporate world for about five years. I took time off to, to blend my family with my husband's. Together we have five kids. I was getting ready to go back to the workforce. When I was folding laundry, I saw an active shooter, um, Chiron, on my television screen, and it said that there was a shooting in an elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut, a place I'd never heard of. And like everyone, I was incredibly devastated that day. 
But then as the hours went on, I became so angry. I was seeing politicians and pundits on my television saying the solution was somehow more guns. I knew nothing about organizing. I knew nothing about gun violence. I knew nothing about the legislative process. I just knew that was a lie and that I had to act. Now, joining something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which I assumed already existed for this issue. And so when I looked online, I couldn't find anything. You know, I wanted to be part of an army of women. It's what I've seen so many times in, in our country's history, uh, be effective. And that's really how the issue spoke to me as a, as a mom and a woman. And so I started a Facebook page and it was like lightning in a bottle. Uh, so many other women and moms felt that same way that week and started reaching out to me saying, I wanna do this where I live. And none of us really knew what this meant. At first we thought it was marches and rallies. We came to realize what it meant was to organize and to be as effective and as powerful as the special interests we were going up against. You know, I actually never knew those numbers. I, I didn't know it was a hundred people a day. And I, I didn't realize that it was so all encompassing. And, and I think Sandy Hook was such an eye-opening moment for so many people. Um, and I don't remember who said it, but somebody had said, you know, Sandy Hook was kind of when we knew we had completely failed because if, if a nation doesn't care about the, the senseless murder of children, then, then really how do we move forward? And so for most people that would have just been, I think, a very depressing moment, a kind of a moment where they hold their own kids close and, and they really start looking at their local community. But you instead created a national movement. You took it to Facebook. You, you, so many moms joined, and it formally then became Moms Demand Action. What was for you? Why do you think having women at the helm and having mothers in particular at the helm is so effective in this movement? Well, first, we know that that men who make up about eighty percent of our our lawmakers, about ninety five percent of our Fortune one thousand CEOs, are instinctively afraid of mother figures. So. There's certainly um, a fear factor, but the other piece of it is women aren't, because we don't hold those positions of power that I just mentioned, we aren't making the policies and the laws that, that make our family safer. So we have only a certain set of levers of power that we can pull. We're the majority of the voting public, so we can use our voices and our votes. But also, we make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families. And when we take a position, that's usually why lawmakers and um, influencers listen. And so that's really how we began operate around this issue was to say, okay, we're not sitting at the table. We're not being asked. We're not participating in, in this legislatively or from a corporate perspective. So we have, to, we have to find our way in. I always say when, when lawmakers close the door, moms will find a way in the window. <laughs> and I think when it comes to our kids' safety, we're relentless. You know, if we lose our children, we have nothing left to lose. And so for us, this issue is so incredibly important, no matter where we live, no matter where we come from, no matter what state we're in. Um, we know about 90% of Americans support stronger gun laws and that this issue is even more important to women than it is to men. And so Moms Demand Action became a way to galvanize around this issue that 
I think we'd, we'd sort of been watching from the sidelines for so long. Um, in particular, as I said, white suburban moms who needed to get involved and, and stop, help stop the carnage in every community. But also we created a look and a feel and a brand that women clearly find empowering, right? As we talk, I'm wearing my red Moms Demand Action shirt, which many of our volunteers have said makes them feel like a superhero because they're taking on gun extremists, because they're taking on gun lobbyists, and they're doing it and refusing to give in to the, the fear and the intimidation and the attempts to silence us by gun extremists across the country. And so I think it's those two things, the, the ability to organize and, and also that, that feeling of power that we haven't really been given through other venues. So the number you, you just shared is remarkable to me, 90% of Americans? 90% of Americans support stronger gun laws, like a background check on every gun sale, 80% of gun owners. Wow. So the vast majority of gun owners in this country are responsible. Um, and also even 74% of NRA members, and that's a Republican poll. So it's not polarizing. Right. So then why, what, what do you think makes gun reform so difficult then? It's the NRA. We are the only high-income country with a gun lobby. We've essentially allowed gun lobbyists to write our nation's gun laws. Um, and, and until recently, they've been the most wealthy, the most powerful special interest that's ever existed. And, and they created this um, widespread fear among, frankly, Democrats and Republicans for many years who were afraid to go up against the gun lobby. So what do you think it will take for politicians? You know, Moms Demand Action is calling on specific things. It's saying, okay, we demand what 90% of Americans agree with. And so what do you think it, it will take for politicians to actually support that, to actually change gun laws? Like what, what's the next step, particularly in this political climate where we're seeing, if anything, more fragmentation and um, more division than ever? You know, you don't get involved in a social issue thinking that it's going to happen overnight, especially the way the system is set up in America. So when we first started working on this, just months later, there was a vote on a bill called Mansion Toomey. It was a bipartisan effort in honor of the Sandy Hook victims that would have closed the background check loophole we're talking about right now. It failed by a handful of votes in the Senate, including some Democratic lawmakers. Now, not a single one of those Democratic senators still holds their job because we had to show them that if they do the right thing, we'll have their back. If they do the wrong thing, we'll have their job. That's how the system works. And that takes several election cycles. But there, if you look at the A ratings, the NRA gives out these ratings to lawmakers if you look at A ratings right now among Democrats, only one person running for Congress, one Democrat has an A rating from the NRA. And that person's running in Minnesota. Just a handful of years ago, about 25% of all Democrats had an A rating from the NRA. So that is because of the pressure that we have put on these lawmakers and also that we worked hard to make that, turn that A rating, which used to be a badge of honor into a scarlet letter. And that is how this process works. So we have made significant strides. I think Virginia is one of the, the most important success stories where when I started working on this back in 2012, if you had told me that Virginia would have a gun sense majority 
by 2019, I would have said no way. Even Mark Warner, the, the Democratic senator there, had voted with the NRA on several things. And it was like drips on a rock. It was showing up at every gun bill hearing. It was pushing back against gun extremists. It was using all the tools available to us, calling, texting, social media, um, that eventually started to turn the tide in that state. Mark Warner is now a solid gun sense champion. Um, we were able to flip both chambers of the General Assembly to a gun sense majority in November of 2019. Since then, the, the Virginia governor has signed seven new good gun laws. So the work can be slow going, but if you look at what we've accomplished in eight years, it's unbelievable and significant. And, and I think people lose sight of that because it hasn't happened yet at a federal level. But if I've learned anything in eight years, it's that Congress is where this work ends and not where it begins. Wow. I actually didn't know that at all about Virginia. Um, and I, I find, I find the, the pragmatism, I guess, but, but the, the fact that you're so um, confident in the long game, very reassuring. That, you know, you came in and you're like, this is going to be a marathon. You have to be pragmatic, you know, in order to get involved in, in an issue that's going to take uh, several election cycles. And I, I do believe we're on the precipice of really positive federal change, I hope. Um, but again, lives are on the line. You know, what's the other option? Is it to give it give up? Is it to, to not do the work? Um, for too many people in this country who have suffered because of gun violence. I, I guess that's what I find most inspirational. You know, every day I work side by side with gun violence survivors who wake up and do this work because they want to protect other people from experiencing the pain that they've felt. Perfect strangers. And so if I, someone who's never been impacted by, by gun violence but does not want to be, you know, if they can do the work, certainly I can too. So Shannon, one thing that I've I've um, been reading from you, your work and, and that we know from, from our work on gender-based violence is the intimate connection between gun violence and domestic violence. And I'd love if you could really unpack that for our community and because it's something that the media doesn't really talk about as much as you would think, given just how significant that relationship is. Yes. I mean, Clearly, we see um, most of the, the gun violence in this country committed by men, um, in particular mass shootings. Most mass shootings um, are carried out by people with domestic violence in their history. Most of them are tied to an incidence of domestic violence and, and occur in a private residence. So certainly there are, are gender implications. We know a woman who lives in the home of a domestic abuser and there's a gun in the home, she's five times more likely uh, to be shot and killed in her house. So given that over 50 American women are shot and killed by a current or former intimate partner every single month in this country, you know, this is a crisis uh, for women. And if you look at potential solutions, for example, the Violence Against Women Act, which was reauthorized by the House but is sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, for the first time ever, it includes a provision that would prevent domestic abusers and stalkers from having access to guns. Now, the reason that Mitch McConnell's not allowing it to get reauthorized is because the NRA is scoring lawmakers. In other words, they're going to watch how lawmakers vote and then hold them accountable. And yet, women are dying every day 
from gun violence. And we know it's getting worse during the COVID crisis because women are isolated with their abusers who have easy access to guns. There's been a historic number of gun sales since March. Um, and when we talk about the fact that 80% of lawmakers in this country are men, I, I think it goes to show that you know, women, again, aren't, they don't have the power to make the policies and the decisions that, that would protect our mothers, our sisters, our daughters. Um, and, and it's just incredibly important that A, we get involved in activism, but B, we move from shaping policy to also making it as lawmakers. You have such a powerful quote um, about that about that connection with with making policy, where you say every country is home to domestic abusers. Only America gives them easy access to an arsenal and ammunition. And I I remember the first time I read that, being struck by how powerful it was that this was a choice that lawmakers are making that they could actually prohibit a lot of this. So for young women who do want to run, or young, young men, young anyone who wants to run, who, who is motivated by gun reform and really does want to, to do things like ensure background checks and ensure gun safety, what do you say to them? Oh, I think there's a moral imperative, um, particularly for women in this country to run for office right now, because there's such an inequality in power. And because we need a voice in these discussions. Um, I, I think it is so important to look at how you can be useful in society. And look, I don't care if you run for coroner or sheriff or school board or city council or state house or Congress, whatever it is that you're interested in or, in or passionate about, um, I, I would strongly consider running for office. And I think women so often have this fear of failure uh, men don't have that same gating factor. They just jump in and, and sort of assume they deserve whatever position it is they're running for. And, and women are not conditioned the same way, um, at least not yet. And look, this there's no reason that after you graduate from high school or college or whatever your career path is to think about serving in public office. And, and there's so many people that can be helped by using your, your voice I spend so much time in state houses and what you quickly realize is that these people are not rocket scientists. If you are caring and compassionate and concerned, you will make a great lawmaker. So have you considered running? <laughs> you know, I never say never. Um, I'm on the board of Emerge America, which helps train progressive women to run for office up and down the ballot. I really enjoy that work. Uh, we have had over 100 Moms to Man Action volunteers run for office in the last eight years. Uh, one of them is now a congresswoman in the state of Georgia. She took Newt Gingrich's old seat, Lucy McBath. She's a gun violence survivor. Um, and even just this election cycle, we have 100 volunteers running. 50 of them are Moms to Men Action leaders. Uh, and I just couldn't be more thrilled and more proud to support them uh, up and down the ballot. Will I run? I don't know the answer to that. I never say never but uh, I don't have any plans right now. So in lieu of, of running, which I fully wholeheartedly agree, um, I do think it, it's a moral imperative, particularly for women to run, but what can people do to impact change locally in their own community, in their own neighborhood? How can people really support Moms Demand Action and support gun sense and gun safety? There's so much you can do in your community. You know, I, I think about even during COVID, I've watched our volunteers, they're, they're so brilliant and sophisticated. 
Uh, for example, in the state of Virginia now, in over six different cities, they have testified either in person in their masks or online to prevent open carry in sensitive spaces like parks um, or courthouses. And they successfully passed uh, these new policies in municipalities. I've watched Moms Demand Action volunteers zoom into school board meetings and help pass resolutions that require them to send home secure storage materials. There's so many things that, that can be done that are, that are life-saving. Um, and so we are, as I mentioned, organized in every single state. Um, not only, we're so big now, not only do we have chapters, but we have local groups. So I, I, I'm quite certain that wherever you live, there's probably a local group, or if there isn't, you can start one. Um, and it's very easy to get involved. You just text the word READY to 64433. And because we have this amazing network of type A volunteers, someone will call you back right away and, and help you plug in where you live. Can you repeat that? You text READY to what number? 64433. 64433. So I have, I have a couple of questions that are more out of personal curiosity um, than anything else. You mentioned that gun sales have been at you know, record high levels since March. Um, and we do know that during COVID, there has been a significant increase in domestic violence and child abuse. And why do you think more people are lining up to buy guns? And, mm -hmm. and why do you think, what do you think the relationship between that sense of security and gun ownership is? The gun lobby exploits tragedy in this country to sell guns. You have to remember that they spent $30 million to help elect Donald Trump. And even though they had a Republican president and a Republican Congress for two years, they still could not pass their priority legislation. And that's because our organization has gotten so good at playing defense. And in addition, they had a president that, that wasn't scaring people into buying guns. In other words, unlike when President Obama was in office, the gun lobby couldn't say this president is going to confiscate your guns, which they've been saying now for decades. Um, so gun sales were slumping. We call it the Trump slump. And they were at least $100 million in the hole when COVID happened. And they saw this as a way to sell guns. And they started running ads and putting out misinformation, disinformation about the need for a gun to protect yourself. And we see them doing that, you know, even during um, the, the rallies and the protests we've seen all summer. And so in this country, because we have a gun lobby, um, the reaction when there is a crisis is often to buy guns and ammunition. And look, if, if more guns and fewer gun laws made us safer, we'd be the safest country in the world. Instead, we have a 25 times higher gun homicide rate than any other developed nation. So this, this experiment of allowing gun lobbyists to write our gun laws has not worked. And now that we have more guns in the hands of new gun owners, they may live in states where they don't have to have training, they may not know how to securely store their firearm, we are seeing, we're going to see increased domestic gun violence, gun suicides, we're already estimating five to 7,000 more additional gun suicides in this country this year. It's already a crisis of epidemic proportions. About 25,000 Americans die by gun suicide every year. We're going to see more unintentional shootings. This is the only country where children get guns and unintentionally shoot themselves or others. Um, and, and we're already seeing gun homicides spike 
because gun violence interruption programs are, are inside their homes and not able to do the work they typically do to interrupt gun violence. So this is a crisis that the gun violence crisis is exacerbated by the COVID crisis, but the ramifications around guns will be with us long after COVID has been addressed. So you, you've mentioned, you know, kind of the U.S. in relation to other countries when it comes to this. Are there other countries that rival the U.S. in terms of gun ownership? Well, per capita, we're, we're up there. But there are some other countries that have high levels of gun ownership, like Israel. They have much stronger gun laws and much stronger precautions. And again, what they don't have is a gun lobby, right? So the biggest issue that we have is that we have so many guns and so few gun laws um, and such easy access to guns. And we know that because when we look at the states that have stronger gun laws, we see fewer gun deaths. Um, in our country, California has some of the strongest gun laws. They're very experimental. It's sort of our Petri dish where we can go in and, and pass laws and see how they work and look at the data and then extrapolate those to the rest of the country. For the gun lobby, Florida is their Petri dish where they go in and they try to pass some of the worst gun laws and then extrapolate those to the rest of the country. For example, Stand Your Ground was passed in Florida. At one point, the gun lobby was even able to pass a law that prevented doctors from talking to their patients about whether they owned guns and whether they were at risk of suicide or harm of any kind. The governor actually signed that into law and then it was overturned by the Florida Supreme Court. So you can look at what is happening in the states and see that stronger gun laws at a federal level would save lives. So then, you know, beyond just the gun lobby, because it, it is this incredibly powerful group, very financially powerful, and you've mentioned that really pointing out the economic power of women has been incredibly helpful in, in your lobbying and in your work and in your advocacy. But what do you say to individuals who say, no, I have a, I have a right to own a gun? Because that seems to be something that's very unique to the United States, this argument about the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms and it being almost American tradition, American history. Yeah, I, I, I think some of that is, is NRA rhetoric. They want us to believe that's the case. Certainly we have a Second Amendment. Um, the Supreme Court has ruled that, that Americans have a right to have a gun for self-defense. Our organization um, supports the Second Amendment. Many of our volunteers are gun owners or their partners are gun owners. Again, for us, this is about restoring the responsibilities that should go along with gun rights, which the vast majority of, of Americans and gun owners support. Um, even, even the Heller decision around gun ownership in this country said, you can regulate laws, you can regulate rights. And so it really isn't an argument until you talk to a gun extremist. And unfortunately, that includes some lawmakers who believe any law whatsoever is an infringement on the Second Amendment. And, and that's what's been so interesting to watch is that over the last several decades, the NRA has been pulled to the right, much like the Tea Party pulled Congress to the right in the 90s. The NRA has been pulled to the right by state gun groups. So just about every state in the country has its own version of the NRA, but it's typically much more extreme and, and against any laws at all that they see as infringing on the Second Amendment. And so the NRA has had to go to the right too with them. Um, and, and so that is part of this dichotomy between this vocal minority and then what has for too long been sort of the silent majority of Americans, and that's what we're working on, is to make sure that this is a top issue when people go to the polls. So 
you know, I, I find the the power that the NRA has, and and, and to be honest, the power that that the the gun um, the gun control lobby has to be most impactful at their ability to control the narrative. Um, you know, it was, I remember when people were saying, let's ban assault weapons, and they came back saying, those aren't real things. Don't, those don't even exist. Right. And a lot of people are like, okay, wait, what does that mean? So what kind of language should people be using when they engage in these conversations? What kind of things, you know, if, if we're not saying assault weapons, what are we saying? What are we trying to get rid of? What are we demanding? What are those immediate things that we need to know in our own local communities to really empower us as gun safety and gun sense advocates. Yeah, you know, I would, there are some, for example, we, we don't use the phrase gun control because the NRA has polarized it into making people believe that somehow, you know, we're trying to control what they do as opposed to simply be responsible. Um, but, but the NRA is guilty of this as well, right? So when the NRA tried to um, deregulate silencers so they would be more accessible, they called the, the bill in Congress the Hearing Protection Act. As though it had nothing to do with making money for gun manufacturers. It was somehow about protecting the hearing of gun owners, which is absurd. So there, there are those discussions around language, and, and we do call them assault weapons. Um, you know, we talk a lot about prohibiting certain kinds of guns as opposed to banning them because the NRA, again, will use that word uh, as code for confiscation. But generally, even the average gunner you talk to agrees that dangerous people or people who are at risk to themselves or others should not have easy access to weapons. Um, so, you know, I always get this question about like, how do you, how do you convince someone who's diametrically opposed to you to come to the, to the middle? And I don't know that you can with gun extremists, but I also don't know that you need to. Again, if you have 90% of Americans on your side, really what you need is for people to vote on this issue. And, and that's been our focus. A hundred percent. No, I, I, um, one of my biggest frustrations, I think, even with this current U.S. election ha has been kind of this focus on, um, you know, Republicans who might be frustrated with the current administration. And I'm like, there are enough people, enough Democrats, enough progressives, if we just really mobilize them to vote, if we really engage yes. them and focus on who does agree, because it's a pretty significant population. So, Something I've noticed, um, you know, when I was when I was looking at some of your videos prior to, to speaking with you, one thing I noticed was this comparison that um, a young uh, gun sense advocate had written up about how the NRA began to employ women as spokespeople and really amp up kind of their, you know, rhetoric around moms who, who demand gun rights. Um, and, and that was almost kind of a direct inverse from, from your work, from Moms Demand Action. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that there's, the NRA has attempted to organize in the same way? The NRA has tried to organize in the same way, but they have failed. Um, we've seen several attempts over the last eight years to mimic our branding, our look and feel, to organize on their side, and, and every attempt has failed. I really believe women and mothers organizing against them was always the NRA's worst nightmare. Um, we made it come true. We truly have been their, their worst nightmare. We've derailed them uh, at every turn. You know, we have a 90% track record of stopping the NRA's agenda in state houses every year for the last five years. So they were right to be afraid. Um, so many of our, our volunteers who come into the organization are often young moms 
who have sent their kindergartners to school and who for the first time have to endure a lockdown drill, essentially rehearsing their deaths in the bathroom of their kindergarten classroom. And I don't care what political party you belong to, you realize then that we don't have to live like this and our children sure as hell shouldn't die like this. And that's why we have grown exponentially. It's why we're larger now than the NRA, because Americans realize that we've been sold a bill of goods, that, that more guns and fewer gun laws have not made us safer. Prior to the Sandy Hook shooting, prior to your own kind of experience, really recognizing the existential crisis of, of gun safety in America, had you, and organizing on Facebook into what eventually became Moms um, Demand Action, had you ever thought, okay, I'm going to be engaged in, in gun sense and gun safety or in activism? <laughs> Was that ever even in your line of thinking? Never, not even once. No. I mean, look, I, do I remember the horrific mass shootings that impacted me? Yes. I can remember, I lived in Texas in the 90s. And you may not remember this, but there was a massacre at a restaurant called Luby's. And it was one of the first mass shootings that was televised on, a, on CNN, right? It was still a young news network that was on 24 hours a day. And I can remember how viscerally I was impacted by that. And then I was a, a young mom when Columbine happened. I didn't have the bandwidth to get involved. And then I was a working mom when Virginia Tech happened. Um, and, and honestly, the, the time I really stopped and thought, surely our members of Congress will do something now was when Gabby Giffords was shot. Because I thought, well, this is one of their colleagues. And, and nothing happened. And so when the Sandy Hook shooting happened, um, I, I, I didn't even think, oh, someone will save us. Someone will help us. I knew it was going to have to be us that saved ourselves. But again, I want to say, I am a white suburban mom. And there have been women, black and brown women, who have been working on this issue for decades before I came along and who have put their physical bodies in the streets to stop bullets. And whose children have been killed for years and years and years and have gotten very little attention. And it shouldn't work that way, right? That, that first of all, that white women turned a blind eye, but also that we would have to be the ones who finally brought attention to this issue, right? It just brings into how systemic racism and inequality impacts this issue of gun violence. And how have you at Moms Demand Action been creating an anti-racist movement? Because I know that's one of your priorities. It is. And, you know, it's, it's certainly been a lot of lessons learned. I mean, we were making significant progress. And then in 2018, the, the tragedy in Parkland happened. And our organization tripled in size. And many of the people who came into the organization were suburban white women who look like me. Because again, they were afraid their kids weren't safe in their schools. So what I've learned is that this work never ends and that you have to make sure that it is a priority in your organization, um, not only to recruit volunteers of color and not only to lift up the voices and the stories of those who are disproportionately impacted by this issue, but also to partner with those community organizations I mentioned that have been doing this work for so long to help secure funding for them. Um, and, and, you know, I, I went to a book event for Fight Like a Mother last year, 
and our membership lead was was there. She's black. She, we're in, we were in Boston, and most of the people in the crowd were white. And she stood up and she said, "I'm really grateful you're here tonight, but let me ask you a question. When Black Lives Matters has a rally or a vigil or an event, do you go to those too?" And it's something that that is important that that not only do we expect people from different communities to come to our organizational events, but that we're going to theirs too. And this summer has obviously been a watershed moment for the gun violence prevention movement. Police violence is gun violence. And what we are seeing after this horrific summer of violence, police violence against black and brown Americans is that lawmakers in many states have an appetite to pass gun reform legislation. So we have shown up again, in person in masks or on Zoom to testify on behalf of legislation that requires body cameras and bans chokeholds, raises the threshold that police can use to shoot to kill. Um, it, it is incredibly important that that is part of our policy platform too. And you've, your your uh, Moms Demand Action and your work has actually really been highlighting a relationship between criminal justice reform and gun sense. Can you go into that? Oh, sorry, I'm going to re-ask that because my thing muted halfway yeah. through. Um, your work in Moms Demand Action has really been highlighting, especially recently, the relationship between gun safety and gun sense and criminal justice reform and, and what steps are necessary, particularly for those local communities, um, black and brown communities that are most impacted. What have some of the learnings been there? Well, one of the, the important learnings is that gun violence can be interrupted before the police have to get involved. And you do that by supporting local violence interruption programs. And these have been shown by data to be effective. Um, I live outside of Oakland, where we have several groups like this, uh, Advanced Peace, which is a, an important organization that's now going nationwide um, and have had significant impact on reducing gun violence in Richmond, California, and they do that by having relationships and knowing, for example, when someone may retaliate against someone else or when, when violence may happen and, and intervening because they have trust and relationships created. And that's much harder to do during the COVID crisis when you have to stay inside. So we have worked in California um, to make sure that the budget includes significant funding for these programs. Uh, when we started doing this work, the annual budget was about $9 million for all of the programs in the state. We were able to triple that funding last year. Now, unfortunately, because of budget cuts due to COVID, we were worried there wasn't going to be any funding this year for those violence interruption programs in California. So we lobbied for um, salvation of that funding, and, and we, we were able to do that. So regardless of budget cuts this year, there will still be at least $9 million that will go to those programs. Um, so I think that is a really important key learning, which is violence interruption programs work, and they need to be funded, and they need to be supported, um, and people need to know the, about those programs in their communities. So one thing that I find incredibly remarkable about your work has been your dedication to really making space for others. It's something that you've, you know, we, we've been talking about now, but you've been very deliberate about it. To a degree of even saying this isn't a two-dimensional issue. You know, everybody has a voice, everybody has space. We need to be having a conversation. So it 
it makes me extra curious about what being at the table means to you. <laughs> well, you know, as the adverb goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you are probably on the menu. And too often in this country, women and children are on the menu because we don't have a seat at the table. I think moms demand action gives women a seat at the table, but also just as important, it gives them a platform to decide to run for office so they have a literal seat at the table. And it is just about equal and fair representation. We know that when that doesn't happen, when we don't have that, um, we are more in danger. Our children's lives are in danger. And, and I'm grateful that we're starting to see a change in that dynamic. If there is any silver lining from the last four years, it is that women have realized that they want and need a seat at the table. And so much of your movement has been ensuring that you've created ways for other people to, to also sit at that table and to make that table wider and to really create more space. So what, in your own experience, is somebody who stepped into advocacy and activism um, very much because you felt motivated by something that happened? How do you ensure that others who who are young moms, who are scared about their kids, um, aren't only engaging for a moment and that it instead turns and in, has turned into this movement? How have you inspired that sustainability? I I wanted to be part of an organization where where women led. What I see too often in the activism space is that organizations are run by men. Men set the strategy and take the spotlight. And then women are asked to do sort of the menial tasks of activism, you know, making the snacks, setting up the venue, signing people in. And I wanted women to be able to do everything soup to nuts, right? So yes, they're still going to be doing the venue planning and the event planning and the snack making, but they also get to take the spotlight, set the strategy. And this organization allows women in every single state. And look, we're not just women and moms, we're mothers and others, but we're led by women and, and they are the ones that are leading. And given that we have a single a, a, a chapter in every single state of the country, it just gives that many more women the opportunity to, to do that. And because we've gotten to be such a big organization and because we have so many people coming into the organization, it just gives women that exposure to take on volunteer leadership opportunities that very often lead to them also running for office. Um, I, I, that's what I think I'm most proud of is, is that women have found this work to be empowering, whether it leads to different career opportunities or running for office um, or just giving them a voice and a feeling of empowerment, uh, something that has been, been lacking for so long in the activism space. I think it's, you know, and I know I speak for so many, but I, I genuinely do admire the amount of dedication. And I think the, I think the collective action that you have really centered this organization in, and this movement in, because I, I speak to so many people um, about gun sense and gun safety. And I think what, what is overwhelming in those conversations is they all feel so overwhelmed by the issue. And I have often directed people to Moms Demand Action because I'm like, no, this is clear. There, there, it's very clear. Anyone can engage. Anyone can support. And I would love for our community that is listening, how, how can they support? Where do they need to go if they want to join Moms Demand Action, if they want to um, financially donate, if they want to support, if they want to march protest, go, um, go to those state houses. How can they support you and your work? 
Yeah, I'll give you several ways. So as I mentioned, we're not just moms, we're mothers and others. So if you want to become a, a member of Moms to Be in Action and you're a, a dad, that's great. I love seeing men in Moms to Be in Action shirts. We also have Students to Be in Action now. Um, and it's the largest youth-led gun violence prevention movement in the country too. So if anyone wants to get involved, you can text the word READY to 64433. We also have a website, momsdemandaction.org, and you'll find all kinds of stuff there, ways to donate, things that are happening near you, um, and, and data and information, which I know is useful to a lot of people when they're having conversations about this issue. Not only do we have a main Facebook page, we have a Facebook page for every single state. So you can also see what's going on near you. Our Twitter handle is at Moms Demand. Um, and, and you should find what you need at one of those, at one of those places for sure. Uh, and then I'm at Shannon R. Watts, both on Instagram and Twitter. And you have an incredible book out um, that I'm currently reading that I, you know, that I think everybody should read. Thank you. Yes, the book Fight Like a Mother. And uh, it's a labor of love. It's, it's, I call it part, part memoir, part manual, part manifesto. Um, and it, it is meant to be a way to help other people understand how I did this, how they can do it. You don't have to create a na national organization. You can just create a movement in your community. Um, and it also will encourage them strongly to run for office. <laughs> That's a theme. I'm, I'm very glad. So Shannon, my last question for you is if we have to leave this community with any, anything, one quote, one word, one book, one idea, one thought, what would you leave this community with? Think about what office you could run for and start to prepare. Find your kitchen table, go to emergeamerica.org. And, and decide to sign up for the training. Join Moms Demand Action so you have uh, this grassroots army to support you. And think about, you know, what does 2022, 2024 look like in your life? And, and can you step into the arena and do that by taking on um, an elected office at any level? Thank you. Thank you so much. I am so grateful we had you here today. and. Um, so grateful for the work you're doing, the leadership, and and for Moms Demand Action. Um, truly, as a new mom Thank myself, you. it is very reassuring. And I and I hope by the time um, my daughter is in kindergarten, uh, I'm not nervous about um, gun safety checks. And and I, I I so appreciate the work you do. And I know I speak for so many parents and just people, not even just parents, siblings, people, grandparents, um, who who question why gun sense and gun safety are not as common sense as they could be and should be. So thank you so much, Shannon, for being here today. Thank you. I know it's an honor. Appreciate it. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lambert Thank you for joining us.